Father, thank you for this time we get to worship you as we study your word, as we fellowship in your spirit. I pray that we would be better equipped to exalt Christ, evangelize the sinner, and edify one another with your word. Just be glorified in this time, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Everywhere you look, the Creator, the invisible Creator has made visible His divine attributes and eternal power through His creation. And because He created all things, He is worthy of glory, honor, and power. The Creator made you, and He provided everything that you've needed every day. The question you have to ask yourself is, have you thanked Him and honored Him as your Creator? The Bible says you haven't. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks. Romans 1.21 Even though we rejected God, our creator, he graciously revealed himself in the Bible. And he revealed himself as a trinity, one being eternally existent. In three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He revealed himself as holy, completely set apart. He revealed himself as the judge. All-powerful, all-knowing, righteous, and sovereign over all. As the sovereign creator, he created humanity in his image. Initially, Man was without sin, perfect, innocent, in right relation with God, the Creator. God graciously put man in a garden, surrounding him with food-bearing trees, plants, withholding nothing good, from him. But in the garden, he put one tree and prohibited man from eating of that tree, that tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Along came a serpent, craftier than the other animals, enticing the first woman, Eve, and she ate of the fruit. She gave of the fruit to the first man, Adam. Adam being fully responsible to God's command, ate of the fruit and willfully disobeyed God, condemning all future generations to God's judgment. So, all generations after that were born in a sinful condition. God, being just, is not able simply to excuse sin. He said, I will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Psalm, Exodus 34, 7. You have violated God's perfect, moral, righteous law. You are guilty under God's judgment. What are you going to do? What is the solution? God made the solution. He sent his only son, Jesus, to the earth. Jesus. 
Jesus is revealed to us in Scripture as a member of the Trinity, along with God the Father and God the Spirit. He is revealed as fully God and fully man. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. He was revealed in Scripture as perfectly righteous and perfectly sinless. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, 1 Peter 2.22. He died to save sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, 1 Timothy 1.15. He became God's perfect sacrifice. Meeting God's requirement of righteous justice. Through his crucifixion, he paid the penalty for your rebellion against a holy and righteous God. He absorbed the wrath of God in your place. And because God was completely satisfied with his righteous sacrifice, he raised him from the dead three days later. Jesus defeated sin and death. So the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus is God's solution to your guilty position. And mankind's only hope. So what is the proper response? First, you must recognize your sinful condition and that Jesus died for your sins. Then you must repent of your sins turning from your sinful ways. And you must believe in Jesus, trusting in Him alone to save you. And if you recognize, repent, believe, then you will follow Jesus. If anyone desires to come after me, he must, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Luke 9, 23, Jesus said. So following Jesus means to embrace new desires. and committing yourself to serve Him. And He's worthy of, of complete sacrifice. So, if you, if you repent and believe in Jesus, God will take away your sin and He will credit the righteousness of Jesus Christ to your account. If you repent and believe in Jesus... God will give you the indwelling Holy Spirit and empower you to live an obedient life. If you repent and believe in Jesus, God will over time conform your thoughts, words, and actions to those of His Son. If you repent and believe in Jesus, God will keep His promise to take you to heaven and give you a new glorified body. Jesus Christ is our only hope. God has graciously made a way for us to be reconciled that is brought to peace with our Creator, who we have rejected, we have failed to honor and thank, even though He's provided for us. So please repent and believe in Jesus before it's too late. Thank you.
love the way that you did that. If you repent and believe this, if you repent and believe that, you know, your the, the results. Excellent. Excellent. Very encouraging. Weren't y'all encouraged? What's the matter? I was. I was very encouraged. How about you guys? Yeah. 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 Very, very encouraging. Okay. Gentlemen, you ready to finish this thing out? Let's get it. We uh we are going to try to cover a lot today and I'm going to give you um uh it's online, but the questions for a study guide, uh for you to fill out and work on over the summer. I honestly am, uh, I will give you mega grace. What I mean by that is, is I just want it before we start back GBI in the fall. So if you want to do the work over the summer and you're ahead of the game, David, good job. Uh, but if you want all summer to do my stuff, that's fine. Uh, reading McManus's book over the summer you're, that's fine. Um, just get it to me as soon as you can. All right? The idea is that I just want y'all to, I, I want you to think on it, you know, and get through it. Brad, that was really, really good. I appreciate it, brother. Um, I want to deal with the question just because I want to hear y'all's take on this. Um, I respect you guys, uh, and I want to hear your take on it because it's something that I've wrestled with in my own gospel presentations and I've told people to do it before and and then come back and said, well, I'm not sure and then gone forward. You said this statement you in your in your gospel presentation, Jesus died for your sins. Jesus rose from the dead for your sins. Probably from our our track, yeah. But to me, I, I've gone. After that is for all that have put their faith and trust in it. So there's, right. that's why I was okay keeping it there, because then it's juxtaposed with that immediate statement for all those who have put their faith in all of his sins, right? So I, I don't have real strong feelings about that. I really don't. Uh, I understand wanting to be careful with saying, you know, he died for your sins. I'm not uh, a big. I mean. I don't want to get into a theological debate with the limited atonement. Right. I don't want to raise that specter, though. I don't think it's real necessary because all those all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Sure. I want to focus. On that. And I'm not I'm not arguing with you. No, I'm, I'm I'm trying to think through it. Yeah, yeah. Even me. And yeah. do you understand what I'm getting at? Yeah. Um, what do you think, Mark? I want to hear your. Yeah, Right. Now, maybe that's wrong. But, I mean, maybe it's not. It's not very personal to say that. Yeah. If I say he died for if he died for sin, I'm, I'm leaving anybody out of it. You know, I'm I'm, I'm leaving the non-elect out of that. I guess I could say. Yeah. Well, even cop out or what? Even first first uh, Peter one twenty two says Christ Jesus came to world to save sinners. And it's very generic. Yeah. Uh, we could say Jesus died for sinners. Maybe. Yeah. The, the difficulty, and I'm not saying change it, and I'm not saying if I'm, I'm going to go back and change it on the track. I'm just, I'm trying to work through it in my own mind. Yeah. Do you understand? Uh, there is an element where there's the benefit that everybody gets for the, the death. But one of the, one of the things I've noticed in the interviews from all my students this last time is one of the questions, they, they, did, they were required to go and do an interview for unbelievers. Right, when they did the interview, they uh, they asked, "What does the Christian faith say?" I'm telling you, probably 90% says that Jesus came in the world to die for my sin, or Jesus came in the world to die for sin. That Jesus came to die for sinners. Jesus came to die for the sins of the whole world. Those those phrases are used so often by unbelievers that they could define define that. So my question, and I've always been kind of, not always, but in the last five years, really grappled with, is 
leaving that insecurity for them in the gospel presentation. And this is just something I'm, I'm, I'm working on in my mind. Jesus died for repentant believers. And just leaving it there and saying, so did he die for you? That's the question. Did he die for you? If not, you're going to face judgment one day. I guess when I started learning about limited atonement, yeah. I was really hostile to the idea of saying he died for everyone because people can use it. In wrong. Wrong, very easily. But then I just thought it's very simple of just switching a little bit of the wording to be, uh, you don't have to go in a huge discourse about limited atonement, but just says, just say, Right. If you just put that if in there, um, it it takes it. And he did. He yeah. did by the second, you know, by the second yeah. half. Just thinking through it, guys. Just that's, thinking that's through it. Kind of avoid it. Yeah. I, I just think it's I, I think it's always good to think through. Right? All right. Love you guys. It's good. Thank you for uh, surviving the year. I appreciate your time. Let's go ahead and look at what the reformers said. Uh, Wendell asked me the question, what would be the di biggest difference between uh, presuppositional apologetics and biblical apologetics? Let, let me re-say this one more time. McManus labels his apologetic method as biblical apologetics. Um, obviously, that is, he's not being arrogant. He's just trying to say that this is what it most likely is. He, there isn't one out there that would say that their view is not biblical. <laughs> All four of the previous ones would say that they're biblical apologetics too. Do you understand? What distinguishes his from a presuppositional model, which is what I think he is as a whole, he's very presuppositional, he agrees a lot with uh, Van Til and Bonson, is, is that there's more about the gospel in the presentation and even in presuppositionalism it can fall into philosophy does that make sense yeah. there's still philosophical ideas so does everybody understand these the differences and how they fit together yes no kinda yes Tim okay get it okay Presuppositional just basically stands on all the presuppositions, including the authority of Scripture being the primary one. Okay? Which we all agree. Biblical apologetics would probably say, look, be careful of including the gospel in the apologetical method. For lack of a better term, that would be his main thing. Biblical, McManus's biblical apologetics would say, be careful to include more of the gospel in the presuppositional model. And I, I think, I mean, that's a very simplified explanation of what yeah. biblical apologetics is all about. And that be careful of still falling into philosophy in the presuppositional model. Because you can argue, don't answer a fool according to his folly, answer a fool according to his folly, make it all about making their worldview look like it's foolishness, right? What is the statement? God exists because of the absurdity of the contrary. <laughs> it's funny, in my uh, final exam, several of my students didn't like that. Uh, they put, what's the weakness with this view? Because I asked, what's the weakness with the view? They say, it is not God exists because of the absurdity of the contrary. They didn't understand the logic. What's wrong with that? Doesn't that make sense? What does, explain that little phrase. God exists because of the absurdity of the contrary. What's he implying? It's called the... If the contrary wasn't absurd, God would exist? No. Absurd. Huh? Anyone who says that God does not exist is absurd. Right. That's basically what it's saying. Saying, to say that God doesn't exist is the most absurd thing you could ever say. In other words, it's not a proof it's not a proof, it's just uh, obvious. Do you understand? He's not giving it a proof. It's not an argument for the existence of God as a proof. It's like, this is just obvious. It's like air that we breathe. I'm not even going to recognize you, 
basically. It's absurd. Now, what would be prob what would be the problem with just saying that? Insulting, offensive. Not shut them down immediately. Okay, well this this debate is over. Yes. Yes, it's not a respectful, honoring, gentle way to do things. Right. Do you understand? But it's true. <laughs> have y'all have ever dealt with this before? Somebody comes to you and says, well, the Bible says this is true. But you know that their hearts, in the way that they're presenting this to the person that they have a case against or an argument against, they're doing it to beat the person. And they really don't care anything about the person. They just want to stand for the truth. And it's because they know that the truth is on their side. You understand? That's what presuppositionalists often come across. They've got truth. You're stupid. I win, you lose. No respect. That's, that's where he would also say in biblical apologetics, it doesn't present itself that way. It's a putting yourself in the shoes of the law saying, I get why you don't get this. I understand because you have a dead heart like I had a dead heart. Yeah, that's what, a, that's what a presuppositionalist would just say. You're a fool. When in the other passage that we saw today to show respect, you don't call somebody a fool. Right? Even if it's true, you say it in a way that's honoring, respectful. Man, I wish everybody got this part of presuppositional apologetics. Very few get that. Very few. All right, we got it? All right, so let's look at what the Reformers' uh, apologetic was. I'm not going to go through all this, guys, because y'all know a lot of this. Y'all know about Luther, right? Uh you know the whole issue of the Roman Catholic Church when the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from Purgatory Springs, and he stood, with it, stood against this. And he had to give a defense at the Diet of Worms. Some would say worms. Worms. Verms. Uh, worms. Worms. Uh, so I love this quote. And... Whether it's exactly, it's even debated whether it's exactly right or not. But I like the quote, and you can see his apologetic method in it. Unless I'm convinced by the testimony of the Holy Scriptures or by evident reason. Now, that's a very interesting little phrase there. I wonder if he said that, or by evident reason. That would be, that would be a little bit philosophical. I don't know if he said that because of other things that he said. For I can believe neither pope nor council alone, as it is clear that they have erred repeatedly and contradicted themselves. I consider myself convicted by the testimony of the Holy Scriptures, which is my basis, his authority. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. There you go. Thus I cannot and will not recant, because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. God help me. Amen. He was a presuppositionalist. Or a biblical apologist. Do you understand? Questions? Got it. For this reason we must note that if we do not uphold the gospel with its own strength, but rather with our own resources, all will be lost. So that no matter how well we defend it, it will crumble to pieces. Let us have no anxiety that the gospel needs our help. Amen, right? It is sufficiently strong of itself and may be committed to God alone, whose it is. He's a presuppositionalist or a biblical apologist. Hence, it is a poor and miserable thing that this rabble of sophists opposes it, which would be philosophical arguments. For what do these poor bats hope to accomplish with their petty flappings? He's a little bit uh, direct, though, isn't he? Almost presuppositional completely. Let them come. By the grace of God, they have no true learning. In all these things, there is no better counsel than to preach the gospel simply and purely, praying God that he will direct and lead us. Martin Luther, Sermon on Faith and Good Works. Make sense? All right. John Calvin, same idea. Let's see. Here's the quote. 
I didn't read the quote. Oh, well. In 1533, the same year as his conversion, he wrote a speech about Jesus and the Beatitudes. The police came to his door, and the speech, Cop, Nicholas Cop, had insisted that justification was by faith alone and Christ alone. Calvin literally disguised himself. And my point was in this, there's sometimes you flee and sometimes you stand. Even Calvin fled. So Calvin fled from the city. He lived in fear for his life. So I do think that, I don't think he sinned in that. I think God in his providence used his run. Basic to Calvin's distinctive approach to apologetics is a strong doctrine of human sin. Calvin explains the effect of our mind, saying, The reason of our mind, wherever it may turn, is miserably subject to vanity. Calvin insisted that the pagan philosophical ideas of reason alone as the ruling principle in man, the sole measure of truth and guide in life, be abandoned in favor of the Christian philosophy, of submitting human reason to the Holy Spirit's teaching in the Scriptures. So, what's he? Presuppositional. Right? Alright. Uh, in vain for us, therefore, does creation exist, so many bring lamps lit, lighted up to show forth the glory of the author. Though they beam up upon us from every quarter, they are altogether insufficient of themselves to lead us to the right path. Some sparks, undoubtedly, they do throw out, but these are quenched before they can give forth a brighter effulgence, I guess. Wherefore, the apostle in the very place where he says the words are images of the invisible things adds that it is by faith we understand that they were framed by the word of God. What does he, what's he getting at here? Creation doesn't save. General revelation can't save us. Do you understand? We only understand that through faith. Does everybody understand? Okay. Zwingli. <sighs> He's really good too. Memorized most of the New Testament. Can you imagine? He preached his first sermon in 1519. To Christ will I lead you. He is the source of salvation. His word is the only source of food I wish to nourish your hearts and lives with. The articles and opinions below, uh, I, Ulrich, confess to have preached in the worthy city of Zurich as based upon the scriptures which are called inspired by God, and I offer to protect and to conquer with the said articles. And where I have now correctly understood said scriptures, I shall allow myself to be taught better, on, but only from said scriptures. Only scriptures. In the gospel, one learns the human doctrines and decrees do not aid in salvation. The true divine scriptures know nothing about purgatory after this life. Furthermore, they, scriptures, recognize no priest except those who proclaim the word of God. Let no one under, undertake here to argue with sophistry, philosoph, philosophy, or human foolishness, but come to the scriptures to accept them as judge. For scriptures breathe the spirit of God. So the truth either may be found or, if found, as hope retained. Amen. So it's all about scriptures. You get it, guys? So the key features are this, their emphasis on the authority of scripture, the rejection of pre-reformed theologian, quote-unquote, Aquinas, for the argumentation. Chuck him. Their well-learned well philosophy is often not even used in the defense of the gospel. So they don't even believe in it. Their confrontational method of defending the Protestant faith is obvious, correct? And their very clear awareness of the depravity of mankind. These are the things that they stood for in their apologetics. All right? What are the key doctrines we are often called to defend? This is what you'll do for your project. You'll write a paragraph or two on each one of these. The existence of God. Okay, you'll have to give a defense of this. Let's give it real quick. Give me some scriptures. How do we know that God exists? Genesis 1.1 states, in the beginning, God. That's why he exists, because God told us he exists. Right? Anything else? I mean, obviously, any scripture that points to God is going to prove that God exists. Romans 1 will say that the scripture, or the general revelation shows that God exists. 
But I know that you're not going to believe it. I love, by the way, the way you started that whole concept. All right. Second, the creation of the world. Creation of the world. How do you defend this, David? Genesis. Genesis 1, right? Yeah. All right. Anything else other than Genesis? Any other scriptures that come to mind? Colossians 1. He is the firstborn over all creation. By him and through him and for him all things came into existence. Yeah, good. Anything else? John 1. That's another one. John 1, 1 to 3, right? Hebrews 1, right? By this all things hold together by the word of his power. Right? Good. So you're just going to give scriptures. You're going to explain these. You're going to defend these. Right? The deity of Christ. How would you defend it? Colossians 1, John 1, Hebrews 1, right? Is there any Old Testament passages? I challenge you to think through that. Isaiah 9. Isaiah 9. There you go. Isaiah 9. It, whenever John quotes the suffering servant passages pointing to his Lord. Yeah. yeah. Psalm 110. There's another one. Good. My Lord says to my Lord. Sit at the right hand. The authority and accuracy of Scripture. How would you defend this? This is your baby, Brad. As you go into the mosque and they tell you it is messed up, what do you say? You're wrong. <laughs> You're just wrong. You're wrong. Let me... What do we do? What do we say? How do we show? Okay, what's it say? Okay, and what would the Muslim, Muslim say back to him? Scripture is corrupted. The Bible is corrupted. You can't believe it. Because of time? Is that what they would say? I'm not going to give you an explanation. You're just going to say it's corrupted. Wow. Because that's what they've been indoctrinated to say. They don't even have a, they don't have most, a basis. Most of them don't, yeah. I've never met anyone who took the time. They just dismissed it. But they it. do say the Quran is not corrupted. Yeah, they which say is that. Inconsistent. It says to do one thing, and then I, over here it says don't. And it even confirms the the, uh, the Trinity, the deity of Christ, is confirmed in the Quran. Really. In uh, in chapter three, it says, "I will send my word to you, Jesus." And if you talk about the, they believe that the Quran is God's is God's eternal word. It's not created. Mm. And if you're calling Jesus the the word, word. you're saying that oh Jesus is uncreated, mm. or you're saying the Quran is false, and mm. you have to you're saying your, your Quran is everything. So there's a lot of contradiction. Huh. Interesting. I think knowing and this is one of those things where where I would maybe balance a little away from a presuppositional argument is that you still need to understand, especially if you're going to deal with a people group, you need to know their worldview. You need to know their fallacies, the mistakes of their, their worldview. You can't just stand on those things. Or what I mean by that, you can't just stand in your world and bury your head in the sand. Well, I think it just shows great respect. You're taking the time sure. to learn, because this is culture to them. This is what they live and breathe. Sure. They're saying, I hear you, I'm listening. Do you see the problem? Right. Right. I do think that knowing, and I would not make long arguments, but I would say that it just makes, with all of the, and I'm not going to make a long argument, but with all of the textual, uh, all the uh, manuscripts that we have, it is impossible for that errors, all these errors, to come in. It's impossible. And I would probably bring that out. I'm not afraid to give a couple of evidences to say, look, you're just... That's, that's just you saying something because somebody told you that. It's not because you necessarily researched to find out. Right. Don't they need to argue, like, look how many translations you have? Just say, look, I'm, like, how could yeah. it be right if you have this many right. Bibles? They do. It's they will just, say that. It's just general, complete ignorance. Yeah, of, exactly. Of, they use that all the time. But even if you, can you turn that around and say, but that gives all the more credence. 
to all the doctrines that you're saying aren't there. Because all translations are across the board. No matter how bad it gets, never denies the deity of Christ. Never denied, denies the cross and the plan of the, the gospel. Yeah, and I'll say simply, well, they all mean the same thing. They all say right, they all say. Language. Right. There are, there are multiple English translations of the Quran, and even though it's not the Quran, they'll say, oh, that's the translation of the meaning of the Quran. But is it still useful? It will serve you. They'll say, it will serve you. Mm. Now, all that said, where I agree 100% with a presuppositional argument is this that you still got to go back to showing them the reason why, no matter how many proofs I give you, it's not going to, it's not going to help. If I, if Jesus came down right now and stood in front of you, you wouldn't get it without a heart change. Yeah. And I think bringing up scripture that says that, yeah. I think the Lazarus and the rich man passage is one of the best passages to do, to go through. Because when the guy's in hell, he's saying, show him a resurrected one. And he says, no, you got the scriptures. That's enough. And they won't believe. So let them hear that. Yeah, the vast majority didn't. Yeah, he was the stone which the builders rejected. Why would the builders reject him? So we think we can have a really good philosophical argument now. Yeah. Where I, where I really find value in this whole study of apologetics is, is that I've found that it's helped me with my evangelism to get me back to the gospel faster. Get me to where I need to go faster. Instead of spending all this time trying to argue points, it'll get me back to where I got to be. So, all right, the exclusivity of the gospel, what are some passages? Exclusivity of the gospel. John 14, 6 is definite. Acts, Acts 14, isn't it? Acts 14, 38, 28? Uh, 14, 12. Where it says, 14, 12. No other name. Yep. Yep. All right. So get, get these scriptures. So when you fill this out, you're just going to put these scriptures and you're going to put them in a paragraph or two. Makes sense. By the way, that's not what I got from Clearwater. It, it, and I don't understand. I went through all this stuff with them, and it still didn't, it doesn't register, other than, again, we need grace, right? But always use the scriptures to be your defense. Use the scriptures. It's the power of the word, right? Doctrine of hell. Revelation 20, 15. Anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. There you go. Anybody else? There, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, that implies what? Yeah, it, 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 there's, it will go on. Is it where where the worm never dies? Is that a is that a textual variant on that one or no? That's, that's Isaiah 66, the last verse. Oh, it is. What what was that, Mark? Oh, okay. So there's two, but but one of them is okay. Good, and it comes from Isaiah 66. Anybody else? Lazarus and the rich man. Yeah. All right. Seven. Problem evil. Now, these three. I mean, if we're really honest, every secularist, every naturalist, every agnostic, everybody except for maybe the Muslims and some of the false religions will have a real hard time with seven, eight, and nine. When it comes back down to it, this is the biggest argument against the existence of God. These three. Agree? If you were talking to my, any of my relatives that don't know the Lord, they would almost all go back to this issue. Yeah, why do bad things happen to good people? Why is there evil? And why are Christians evil? Correct? Do you get this? Are y'all getting this from people? Yeah, I think people would think so. I've never had anybody yeah. say it, but... 
If you're, if you're going to a secularist, that is somebody that goes with our culture as a whole, not, not the Muslim culture, but I think as a whole, this is the biggest argument. These are. So what's the answer? Sin, total depravity. Okay, I'm just going to take you where I get taken when I'm on campus and I say this to the atheists. Well, if God's all-knowing and all-loving, why do you allow sin in the world? Yeah. Well, doesn't necessarily exactly say why, but because of evil, there we can his uh, um, attributes that wouldn't be manifested otherwise are put on display: his grace, his kindness. Okay, so what you just gave for an answer is, God allowed sin in the world to show Himself off. Your answer is, Tim, your answer is right. But who's going to buy that? Converted heart. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, that's it in a nutshell. Right? You know what this is? In my, in my perfect, um, or in my infallible uh, opinion, this is where the rubber hits the road. This is the heart of trusting God. This is where you can go, and no matter how you look at it, everybody's going to have a problem with this until they're converted. And even after they're converted, it's still going to be a difficulty. Correct? This is the spot where we have to trust God even if we don't understand. So what do you think Satan's going to use? This is why he's going to use 7, 8, 9, these. Because this is the hardest spot in all the world to deal with. This is the thing to deal with. Yeah. What do you mean by evil things done by Christians? You're talking about like the Crusades. Crusades. So that, that you would, I guess, I would, eight, I would define what Christians are. And then also talk about how they're still... In, the fact of the matter is, is that Christians still sin too. Sure. You do know, on the personal level, there's still liars. We still, right, we still lie. Not, we're not, our direction is not liars, but we still, we mess up, right? I, I think you can't get around that. You've got to own that. You, and you've got to own that the reality is, is that some of the crusaders might have been saved. I can't say that all crusaders weren't saved. I guess I just put a distinction or a qualify what, just to help them understand what Christians means when we say Christians as far as there's lots of false, you know, a Mormon will say they're a Christian. Go with them, go Absolutely. Catholics, so say, at least give a brief, brief description of what a Christian, the distinctions are, and then bring it to a personal level saying, well, even when someone's saved, there's still room, remaining sinful nature that, you know, Right. And I, I think going back to the gospel is still a, a crucial point. Yeah. That a Christian is ultimately not saved by what they do either. Yeah. Right? Christ came to die. He was the only sinless one. Right? All right. <laughs> yeah. Let's go through my... Here's my answer when I went through it with them. And we'll close with this. If, if God is God and all-powerful, then why... Does evil and suffering exist in the world? Why are those things in the world? Right? The answer, short answer, God is God. And he does whatever he pleases. That's the short answer. Does the Bible say that? Does the Bible give that as an answer to somebody that has a question about it? Yes, it does. Look at this, Psalm 115. No, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name. Give glory because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. Why should the nation say, where now is their God? They're mocking him. But our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. They're doing the very thing in this passage 
that the atheist secularist does. And what's the answer? Our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. Our God is God. He's sovereign. And he does whatever he pleases. Now, is that going to be easy to swallow for an unbeliever? No. It's like swallowing a lead pipe. Right? But that's what it says. Psalm 46.10 states, Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. God has determined the end from the beginning. That means everything is by His ordained plan and He is accomplishing all His good pleasure. That's what God does. And I think saying this in some ways, I think we need to say it. I think we need to say it. I think we need to be not afraid. And I think though, as time goes along, including ourselves in it is part of the testimony. In other words, look, I know I don't like the idea of holding my 20-week-old son in my hands, dead. I mean, that is not a pleasant thought to think on Seth being held in my hands. But the fact of the matter is, is God is God and he does whatever he pleases, and that includes the death of my son. Guys, I'm telling you, I'm convinced that what makes an apologist, a biblical apologist, is somebody that lives what they believe. As we live it, we trust him, even if it doesn't make sense. Truth? I mean, that's what we saw in the Apostle Paul. That's what we're seeing in his life, aren't we? Isaiah 55, 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, declares the Lord, from as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts greater than your thoughts. Now, when we first read that verse, we know that the verse doesn't mean what it says, or initially, right? Look over there at it. Let's look at the context again. Remember? Y'all remember the context? It's talking about the Messiah. See, the problem with these kind of verses is, is that people don't understand. We look at it and read it totally backwards. But you will call a nation you do not know, and a nation which knows you will not will run to you verse 6, or 7, or 5 rather, because the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. Verse 6, Seeks the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His ways and the unrighteous man His thoughts and let Him return to the Lord. And He will have compassion on Him and to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. What, what I think we should do, and I didn't get through this on Clearwater, and I wish I would have. What this verse says is, is that we're thinking of the question backwards. In a sense, that God gives any grace at all is unbelievable. It's amazing. Do you understand? Why do bad things happen to good people? The better question is to ask, why does God do good things to bad people? Why does God give any grace to bad people? Because we're all bad, but yet he gives grace to people. Even a small select few is amazing. And that's what he's getting at here. That it is beyond our thoughts that God would give grace to even the vilest of sinners but that's what god does he saves sinners right so we turn it upside down on its head do we turn the question around that god gives any grace and doesn't judge everybody and show his holy justice is amazing correct that's why his thoughts are far above ours 
Deuteronomy 32, 4, the rock, his work is perfect for all are his just ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteousness, righteous and upright is he. One thing to understand is, is that God is God and he does whatever he pleases does not mean that he stops being just at any point. That he's righteous no matter what he does. Do you understand? Y'all get this? So we might not understand it. It might not make sense, but he's always just in whatever he does. Is. Right. He does whatever he does, and he does it always righteous. He never messes up. Now, granted, there are often times that things that happen that he does doesn't make sense to my mind, but it's always righteous. Now, it's not contradictory like the Muslim God that is unrighteous. He says lie. It doesn't matter. Just so you get your way. God is always righteous in whatever he does. It's just not always understanding. We don't always understand it. Right? So the longer answer and deeper answer, if God is good and all-powerful, then why is there evil and suffering in the world is, is for God's glory. <laughs> so why does God do it? He does everything for his glory, just like he said. Right? And ultimately, God is all about showing himself off. And we don't have a problem with that because we know. Why did God ordain evil to come into the world? Well, to show off his glory. Why did God allow Satan to tempt Adam and Eve? To show off his glory. Why does God allow evil in the world? To show his glory. Why is there suffering in the world? To show his glory. Why are even God's own children persecuted? To show his glory. Why martyrs? To show his glory. Now, tell me how you'd answer these. Take one. How would you answer it? It's for his glory. How is that for his glory? Go ahead. Have you crossed it one time talking to a coworker or maybe a coworker? Okay. I try to because he brought up the idea of evil and, and all. And I try to explain providence to him. Okay. So it's a wicked thing that's happening, but at the same time, you know, they mean it for evil, but God means it for good. So more yeah. people will see that testimony. Amen. It's good. Anybody else? What would you do, Rob? Um, Somebody says, Rob, you're telling me six million Jews died the hands of Hitler for God's glory. Uh, well, when, whenever I'm like faced with like you know any persecution questions or you know martyrdom uh, question, I always always think of uh, Acts seven with Stephen. You know, like when he, you know, he, he proclaimed the gospel. He, he gave uh, you know a true exposition of the whole Bible. You know, and, and so you know. In his heart, he was doing God's will. He was doing God's will, just glorifying God. And all the way to the end, you know, to where, even though he was stoned, uh, he still stood and, and uh, 
So a lot of those people, I'm just going, I'm going to give you a hard time, just a little bit. A lot of those six million Jews, though, were unbelievers. They went straight to hell. Anybody want to add? Huh? <laughs> yeah. What about those six million Jews? You're doing good, Rob. I get what you. It's a very hard question. It's a very hard question. It's a hard one. What do you do, David? Six million Jews died. Most of them ended up in hell. How's that for his glory? Okay, so now there's a nation. There's a lot of death and dying in order for a nation to be formed. What do you think, Brad? Doesn't it strike fear into your heart that God is able to save? He's also able to let you be destroyed? That's an interesting thought. So you turn it around on him. You turn it around on him, and it would say, uh, "God does it." You assume that He did it, and call them to repentance. Boy, that was a quick one. I saw his. Did you see what he did? Which is to back up a step further and say they had been rejecting God all of their life, that they got to live any is amazing. That's a good point. That's a good one. I'm just trying to get you all to think through these things. What does the Bible say? How do we get there? Wendell, you want to give a stab at it? I will say that what I think is the take, and, and I'm not saying it always works out this way, but this is where I would go. I would go with this. I would say, first of all, first and foremost, sin came into the world when Adam and Eve died. And from that point on, mankind has been cursed and in rebellion towards God. And the fact of the matter is, is the six million Jews are no different than me. They were born with sinful hearts, wicked hearts. And there has only been one good person that ever suffered injustice. There was only one. And that injustice was at a cross when a bunch of wicked men killed him. And they killed him. He was innocent. He had never sinned before. And he died. But even at that moment, God was taking that injustice to bring glory to himself by providing a sacrifice for sinners like me and you. If you will repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ, it will all make perfect sense. See, it's at the cross and at the cross alone that we understand that God, even in evil, can bring glory to himself. I think it's there that we find the truth. The just for the unjust. That's where we see the truth. That's where the answer is found. And I think evil... Screams, we need a savior. And Jesus came to die to pay for sin. I think the answer to this question is the gospel. Just gave it right back to him. Do you see it? I just think we got to go to the gospel every single time. He's the only one that was sinning. 
sinless. Everybody else is, the question's wrong. Why do good things happen to bad people? Right? All right, love you guys. That's it. Here's your questions. They will be at the end. Give me a one to two paragraph on these. It's on the PowerPoint online. Explain five methods of apologetics, strengths and weaknesses of each. Write a clear gospel presentation using the outline given in that class. And explain 1 Peter 3.15 in context.